Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm Greg Rogen of the Houston Chronicle. Pleased to be joined today by a special, special guest, Evan Drellick, who's a senior writer with The Athletic, former Houston Astros beat writer with The Chronicle from 2013 to 2016, and he's the author of a new book about the Astros and the Jeff Luno era that comes out on February 14th. It's called Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess. You can find that at all your favorite online retailers and uh, good old-fashioned brick-and-mortar bookstores on Valentine's Day. Evan, great to talk to you again. We worked together here years ago at the Chronicle. Always good to see you. And uh, congratulations on all your success with the book that's upcoming. And uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you today about the book. Gregory, this is a lovely reunion, and I really appreciate you having me. Let's kind of start this from the beginning. Um, there was an excerpt in The Athletic recently from your book. It, it detailed more about the reporting of this story, and you detailed how you had learned about the Astros and the cheating while you were covering the 2018 ALCS between the Astros and Red Sox for, I believe it was NBC Sports Boston at the time. You actually heard it from a source within the Astros. Yeah, middle of the ALCS. Um, I, I spoke with people who who knew firsthand knowledge, sources on the inside of the Astros, who, who knew what the team had done uh, in 2017. And it took 13 months and one job change for me to get the story done. You know, but I started reporting on it right away. Uh, the final night of that ALCS, the, the whole setup had, had been described to me what had existed in 2017. So I have to do my television hit down on the field. And that was like right along the third base side, you know, the visiting dugout at Minute Maid. And I just walked over to the home dugout and down into the tunnel. It's very quick to get to from the field and the dugout. And uh, there was a garbage can and there was a, a, a wall on the right with wires hanging down where you uh, can imagine a, a monitor had once been. And, yeah, 13 months later, we were able to get a story done, but it, it began before I joined The Athletic and during that ALCS. The process of reporting, I mean, it, you were talking about how long it took you. You would also encounter resistance. There's a quote in the book where a person tells you, I'll go till the end to crush you people. Trust me. How prevalent like a reaction was that when you were trying to report this story? There was a lot of... Um, 
there were a lot of things that added up to why the story took as long as it did. Number one, it's a really difficult story to get done. You want to make sure you have enough sources, enough corroboration. I was at an outlet at the time that was responsible for mainly broadcasting Boston Celtics uh, basketball games. They were not an investigative um, inclined outlet. You know, that's just not what they do at regional sports networks. Typically. Um, I also knew having covered the Astros for the Chronicle from 13 to 16, you know, 14 and 15 seasons, and then additional off seasons and spring training that the Astros would probably attack me, right? They would paint me as, you know, the ex Astros beat writer covering the Red Sox. Who's just trying to, um, you know, stir it up with the Astros. And that wasn't going to stop me, but I knew I needed more. I wanted more than I had. I, I assumed the story would eventually be all unnamed sources. I wanted to try to find somebody who, who would be willing to go on record. Uh, and fortunately, eventually, Ken Rosenthal and I, just before publishing, did find somebody in, in Mike Fires. Um, you know, at that point, we had had all the f- facts already ascertained. Um, so, yeah, look, there was there was pushback in a variety of ways. There were some people who, like you read in that excerpt, were threatening toward us. That wasn't everybody. This is a messy, controversial topic. You know, I, I, I'd almost be surprised if everybody was like eager to pick up their phone. You, you wouldn't expect that, but yeah, uh, there, there's, there were all sorts of pressures and pushbacks along the way. You know, as someone who's read the book, I, I really want to stress this is not 350 pages about banging trash cans. This is a very fleshed out, you know, portrait of this administration that was very controversial. This Jeff Luno regime and really kind of the ways they changed baseball and maybe sports in general. And, but going back to what you were saying about, you know, getting a source on the record, like Mike fires, I think that was really kind of stunning to see an active player, you know, come out on the record and talk about what his, the cheating that his former team had participated in. When we look at Mike fires now, he hasn't pitched in the big leagues since 2020. He's likely not pitching in the big leagues again. Is he remembered as a martyr, a pariah? I mean, how surprising was it to you that he went on the record? Because, I mean, you knew Mike Fires. He he came here near the end of the 2015 season, the last season you covered the Astros in full. Did you guys have much of a relationship? Or was that more Ken Rosenthal who got him to talk? Or how did that work well, out? The person who got, when Ken and I paired up, and, and this is in the book, um, I, knowing the importance of the story, if it was a situation where somebody who there wasn't a really strong pre-existing relationship um, for either of us, you know, if it was something closer to a cold call, I wanted Ken to make the call because Ken is so widely respected. And I really think his, his cachet in the industry is unmatched. And so it was Ken, um, you know, certainly I had heard Mike's name um, in 18 when I, when I first started reporting, but, uh, it was Ken who made that call and Ken who got him on the phone, read him the details of what we we had reported uh, to that point, which was really the whole thing. We, re- we already had the whole thing, um, but the story was in a much, much better position with somebody on the record. It's just uh, it, no matter what you're reporting on, science, major sports scandal, government affairs, whatever, um, you want people on the record if you can get it. And, you know, from a bird's eye view, I look back at, a, the fact that we were able to get reporting done on a cheating scandal at all about a World Series winning team, pretty remarkable. 
then you add in the layer of we actually had somebody on the record. I mean, you know, the, the chances of, of you landing on a story like that um, are really, really slim. It, it's a rare occurrence to A, get a story done and B, have somebody on the record. You know, for a lot of people, the sign stealing element that was first reported in November 19 is kind of the tipping point for this story. But for those of us familiar with the Astros and your coverage of the Astros, was the genesis of this real this book project really the radical ways story you wrote in May of 2014, which was kind of about the perception of the Astros around baseball? I recall Bud Norris being very vocal in that story, you know, criticizing the Astros and their handling of players and kind of like they were doing things in the industry that really hadn't been seen before. Yeah. So in 2014, it's my first season. I'd gotten there in November of 13. And you know, even before I got to Houston, I, I remember talking to an agent when I was still living in Boston, where I moved from before getting to Houston. And the agent said to me on the phone, there's something weird going on there. Something, something's off. You know, so that was the sentiment of, of the phone call. And that sentiment kept coming up in different ways and eventually, it didn't take that long. It was early in the year. Um, the Astros were making all these different contract offers to young players. And there was a sense that, well, if you take the contract, you'll be guaranteed to be in the big leagues. But if you don't take the contract, you'll be uh, stuck in the minors for who knows what period of time. And, you know, this was the start of shifting, which people understood was uh, probably going to be good. It was harder to understand in the clubhouse. You know, I, th I think out from the outside, I understood, yeah, statistically, this will help you. They were doing different things in the minor leagues. In short, they were ticking off a lot of people. They were not creating buy-in. The team was terrible at the major, major league level. Players were unhappy. Agents were unhappy. It wasn't just like one player being the problem. It was a collective voice issue. Um, and so I wrote about that. I, I simply wrote about that the Astros have a perception problem. And at the time, if you remember, you know, the Astros were the darlings of the analytics world and, and rightly so. But it, it was very polarized back then to where if you present anything, you present criticisms of analytics and, and the outgrowth of the Moneyball movement. Well, you must be a Luddite. You must be left behind. Um, you're just anti-numbers or anti-progress. And, you know, that was it was just wrong. It, it was a way of overlooking and dismissing these cultural issues that were developing inside the Astros front office and more broadly in baseball. And, and that story cost me certainly with higher ups with the Astros, but I actually think it ended up being very important uh, really to my career and, and even to the Astros reporting in that um, it proved to others who then spoke to others, kind of a snowball effect. That, you know, look, there was somebody paying attention to what was really going on, that there, there were people willing to to not just print uh, whatever marketing or PR Jeff Luna or Jim Crane wanted out there. And I, I think that trust that I started to create in my time as an Astros beat writer, I think that can be pretty directly drawn to if you ask a question, well, well, why were you the one able to break the story with Ken Rosenthal? People trusted me and, and it became a word of mouth thing where. One person introduces you to another um, and people know that you're willing to be fair and, and not going to hide from kind of the hard story. And we didn't hide from, from the hard story back then. So this book is really a management culture book. It gets to science stealing. It explains how did we end up with this massive scandal? 
but the book begins, you know, after the introduction where we go into science ceiling and I give an overview of the book, the book begins before Jeff Luno's even working in baseball. We go back to his um, startup days in, in the tech world in the Bay Area before he even gets to the Cardinals. The second chapter is about the Cardinals. And so you really get this progression of Moneyball, Jeff and the Outsiders entry into the sport, and then everything that happens really up through the present. I was going to say, this is not just a baseball book. You could use this book in management courses at business school. It's, it's not just something that focuses on balls and strikes or, you know, banging trash cans. You know, going to the perception of the Astros, you've, you and Ken Rosenthal have also reported on the 2015 Yankees, the 2018 Red Sox, who also used electronic means to, to steal signs. Why do people look at the Astros differently than those teams? Is it something as simple as the brazen trash can banging? Or I mean, are we breaking down degrees of cheating here? I mean, because cheating is cheating. There's been cheating in baseball, really, since the sport started. But what makes these Astros different in the minds of fans and opponents and whatnot? Well, you're, you're kind of hitting on the, the, the central part of the discussion. Is any cheating equivalent to any other form of cheating? And I think that's up to viewers and listeners and readers to decide for themselves. Uh, I think most of baseball, and, and I would include myself in this, uh, understand or, or, or you know, acknowledged severity. What the Astros were doing, and, and this is different than what any other team has been shown to do, was a step or several steps beyond what the 2017 Red Sox, 2017 Yankees, or 2016, 2015 Yankees, um, 2018 Red Sox were doing, right? The, the, the Astros on the road were doing an equivalent of this. So the, the, the lower, if we're going to work in this classification, the lower level of cheating was you used your video replay room to decode signs. Either your video replay guy did it or you had players come in and they would work on it. That information would go to the dugout. Somebody would probably just walk it up there or in the case of the Red Sox, it traveled by a smartwatch. Uh, in the case of the Astros on the road, it traveled by the phone to uh, into the dugout. Then that information goes to the runner on base. So for runners on second base got a runner in scoring position. And the team hasn't changed its signs or the signs aren't that hard to decode. Well, you know what the signs are, right? You crack the code. Guy throws down six fingers, six different signs. You know which one of those six is the one that matters and what it means. And that's, you know, it's it's an advantage. Um, certainly, you know, people argue how much advantage was it? Well, the players certainly felt it was an advantage. You know, Carlos Correa is on the record about that. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that's a whole other debate. How much did it impact that really nobody can answer? But I, I, I think it's a little naive to sit there and go, nobody wanted this. Yeah. It, for some people, it's a help to know what's coming. Um, what the Astros did was entirely remove that element of a runner on base, and that was always, that's always the classic sanctioned, allowable form of cheating. You use your eyes, not with the aid of a video room. But what the Astros were doing was entirely off the field of play and uh, prompted by electronics. You set up the camera in center field. The camera feeds a, a signal right before the entrance of the dugout into the tunnel to that video screen. And then on any pitch, you have that ability as long as you've decoded the sign to directly tell the hitter what's coming. You don't need the runner on base. And you add in the fact that the Astros won a World Series. 
uh, you probably add in the fact that the team was so loud about how smart it was, and they were in many ways smart and, and innovative. Um, and also add in the fact that they continued after the commissioner had attempted to draw a line in the sand. You know, he had punished the Red Sox and Yankees very lightly and not nearly enough in 2017 for that lower base running scheme. Um, it, it doesn't surprise me that, that people look at it that way. And, and I know that the, the, there's a very prominent line of thinking among Astros fans that, well, it's everybody was doing it. So let, let's, if, if I may, let's take that on now. Um, we know the Red Sox and Yankees were doing base runner system 15, 16, the Red Sox start in 16, 17. Chris Young comes over the outfielder from the Yankees to the Red Sox. Um, my book has reporting on the Dodgers using a base runner system. Um, I think it's reasonable. And, and there's reporting that is in the book about people on these teams, Red Sox, Astros, Yankees, thinking that the other veteran contending teams may well have been doing this. Um, I think it's reasonable to think there were other teams that were using a base runner system. We have no firsthand evidence, meaning people who know, not people pointing fingers from the outside, people who, who can say, I live this and have said I live this, about somebody doing something as direct, brazen, egregious as what the Astros were doing. So in short, the Astros scheme was a cut above what the others were doing in the opinions of most. If you want to say any cheating is cheating, well, you're having a different discussion. When you look at the Astros cheating, two central figures who really kind of elevated things are Alex Cora, the bench coach, and Carlos Beltran, the veteran outfielder who was in his last major league season that year. Are they convenient scapegoats or are they just a smaller part of a win-at-all-cost culture that was built there in Houston before they arrived? The question of scapegoats in, in any of these punishments, you look at the Red Sox 18 punishment. So after Ken and I break the Astros story, we also break the story about the, the Red Sox using the base runner system in 18 a year. They won the World Series. The punishment in that case falls to one guy, a video operator, J.T. Watkins. Feels very, very convenient, even though the, the reporting for the book shows that the, Astro, the Red Sox players actually came together and decided to pay him. They paid Watkins while he was on what was supposed to be an unpaid suspension. Uh, and they're doing this because there's a sentiment of, we know what he did for us. Let's take care of him. But I think you, you'd have to be pretty darn naive to think that JT Watkins really is the only person who should be considered culpable for what the Red Sox were doing. I think there's always going to be fall people or people who get more of the brunt. It's very tricky in team-wide uh, cheating scandals. You know, how do you, how do you break that down? How much do you attribute to uh, a Jose Altuve who we know didn't use the scheme that much, but didn't stop it? How much do you attribute to Alex Cora, um, Carlos Beltran, who were indeed the masterminds behind it? Uh, they, they were pushing for it. They wanted it. It was something they led. Um, but there were others that used it. And so how do you assign blame from there? So, you know, I don't think Alex Korn and Carlos Beltran are, are getting too much. Um, I, I think it's possible that there are others who don't get enough. Um, and and maybe, maybe it's a zero-sum game and it just gets distributed differently. But 
you know, it's a tricky thing when you, when it's a team wide scheme, who do you say is most responsible? And, uh, you know, the book discusses the culture that was created. It, it very clearly lays out the culture that was created. There was a ton of distrust. There was very poor communication. Uh, and that's really throughout the whole thing, throughout front office executives, the front office executives, uh, there was huge distrust between players in the front office for, for all the contract things the Astros were trying to do in arbitration. Uh, and then at the same time, the Astros would turn around and be like, Hey, use this new technology. We swear we won't use it against you. Um, you know, th- th- there was a quote from a person with direct knowledge of the league investigation that I thought was pretty poignant it was everybody thought this was this well-oiled machine, but when you look in, it's a disorganized mess. And so, I start the 2017 chapter by by suggesting that the Astros might not have been the team most likely to start cheating. There could not have been a team more poorly prepared to stop cheating, to police it, to have the things in place necessary to avoid a blow up. And, you know, the, the Astros were a tinderbox. It, something was going to give, whether it was Taubman, whether it was cheating. Um, it, it was inevitable in some form or another. Let's rewind a little back to 2014. There were there were some fascinating things in the book from that year. First one I wanted to talk to you about was you, you had this attempted palace coup that you reported on with Bo Porter, the manager, and Reed Ryan, the president of business operations, trying to oust Jeff Luno. Was that ever a thing that was going to happen, or was that just wishful thinking on their part to, to get Luno out of there? Well, and look, Reed Ryan denies it in the book. On the record, Bo Porter denies it in the book on the record, but you know, many others uh, told me this was their understanding of the sequence of events, people in the inner circle. And there was a little smoke around this even at the time. It, it didn't get prominently written. I, I know there was a tweet, you have to go way back, uh, from a guy who had been the Astros beat writer before me, who was no longer covering the team, from uh, Zachary Levine, great reporter, um, who... He, he made some joke on Twitter about uh, Bo trying to get his boss fired. You know, Crane was very, for the most part in that period, letting hands off with Luno, letting Luno do his thing. And it, it to me seems like an unwinnable fight. I, I can't see from what I know of Jim Crane, him turning on the higher ranking executive, the guy who, you know, he passed the blank sheet of paper over to to say, here, here's your here's your oyster. Make it what you want or what you think is best to make it. Um, but, you know, that's it's a good example of, of the dysfunction. And, and there was a lot of examples of it in 2014. There, there were just a lot of uh, it was a, a year of crisis management. And, and there were some people who, who tried to some media members who tried to dismiss it tried to say, oh, it's just the Houston Chronicle making stuff. The amount of crap going on in 2014 was wild. You had the hacking scandal unfolding. You had the Brady Aiken saga. You had people unhappy with the way the Astros were treating them. You had Porter fired after this uh, alleged coup. You know, it, it was a wild, wild time in Astros history. Yeah, the, the George Springer eye exam where yeah. they bring him to Houston on the pretense of an eye exam to try to what to try to get him to sign a contract without his agent present. Yeah. So this would have been, uh, I believe early, uh, late 2013. Um, 
you know, the Astros hire Brandon Taubman. He comes from the finance world and they're trying to bring in somebody to do valuations. You know, and this and Taubman's background is in derivatives. He knows how to value things. He knows how to evaluate underlying assets. And he's a math guy. He, he it's beyond my uh, intellect. I'll tell you that, or certainly at least my training, but they bring him in. And one of the first things they're, they're trying to do is this series of contract offers to different guys. Grossman, Castro, Singleton, Springer, Keuchel gets one. Correa even gets one when he's still in the minors. Uh, and, this, and this ticks off some agents, A, because the offers are really poor. And you know they do this scattershot approach where they're offering all these contracts to guys. And, and really one guy at least should have taken it, Matt Dominguez. But you know people want to bet on their upside. They're doing this knowing that some of them are probably going to go bust. But if they hit, on some of them, if they get some people to sign some of these low dollar contracts, but still more money than you would make as a, uh, you know, first, second or third year player at the major league minimum, they would still at the end of the day, come out on top, right? You could have three of these contracts go bad or whatever the number is. And, and as long as a couple of them went well, you'd still probably have a net positive. So, you know, from a kind of pure practical standpoint, uh, it's not bad thinking. And you see a lot of other teams try to lock up young players. But the the fact that the offers were so low annoyed a lot of people. Springer was early in this process. He's having this amazing year between AA and AAA. Would have easily been one of the most talented players on the 2013 team. Why aren't they bringing him up? Because they don't want to start his clock. It's not because Houston fans didn't deserve to see George Springer at that point. It's because they don't want to start his clock. And also there was some concern about his strikeouts, that he was striking out too much. He needs to still work on some plate discipline. But they bring him to Houston uh, without his agent to make him a contract offer. And they do this under the pretense of, well, it's an eye exam. And, you know, the Astros front office people after the fact acknowledge this was a bad idea. This was not something you should have done because you're ticking off the player and you're ticking off the agent. And word about that gets around is something I had heard about um, really a long time ago. And, uh, you know, it, being first reported here now in the book in, in this in this context. But, um, you know, I don't think the Astros quite understood the, the way they would treat players and, and, and attempt to uh, handle them, you know, whether it's contracts, whatever it is really would have a deeper effect over time. And uh, look, they, they still are still won a title in 17 to 22, but um, you know, what goes on underneath and behind it can look very, very different than what you see on the outside. And does that chicanery, like you see with Springer, does that just ensure that he's not going to sign with his team as a free agent because they manipulated his service time. They tried to, you know, get him to, sign a contract there under the guise of an eye exam without his agent present. I mean, that has collateral damage, doesn't it? Besides in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's an anecdote in the book from Dave Trembley, the former bench coach under Porter, uh, who certainly did not like the way the front office did it, but he, he told me about being down in, in Florida and Kissimmee, the old spring training home, and Springer was getting fitted for suits. You know, the, these different vendors come in and meet with players in spring trainings that, that they buy suits or whatever else. And, you know, they were just talking and, and Springer said something to Tremblay along the lines of, 
when I get a chance to get them, I'm going to get them. And what he was talking about was free agency. And, you know, so for as much as there was this sense of long-term building with the Astros, we're going to do it right. We're going to do it the right way, sustainable. Um, you know, in other ways, they were they were lighting themselves on fire before, you know, the thing could even take off. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, money speaks loudest in free agency. You can overcome these things. But when you talk about all these little advantages that you want to add up and everything counts, well, they were shooting themselves in the foot in a lot of ways. You mentioned Brandon Taubman, who was a key lieutenant under Jeff Luno in the front office. I think a lot of people mostly remember Brandon Taubman for arguably his worst moment, which was after game six of the 2019 ALCS, he goes on a drunken, profane rant in the clubhouse toward a group of female reporters. He's defending Roberto Osuna, the closer they had acquired the year before who had a history of domestic violence. But I think your book had the most fleshed out portrayal of Taubman that I've seen. It basically, the the impression I got was this guy was just worked to a nub, you know, by this front office, by Jeff Luno, and he just snapped at some point. Um, I'm not going to call Brandon Taubman a sympathetic figure, but when you're doing the reporting on this and you have the, the years of background that you do with him, I mean, he's not just a guy who's defined by his worst moment, is he? So let's go through the Taubman history a bit. One of the most, uh, there were a lot of moments when I was reporting this book where I just went like, whoa, this is wild. And one of those was understanding, coming to understand how fractured and split the Astros front office was. It, it, um, when you get to 17 and 18, you, you have really two factions. You have the Jeff Luno, Sigmeidel, on one side and you have Brandon Taubman, Mike fast, who was the head of R and D replaced SIG as the head of R and D and R and D really is the lifeblood of the Astros research and development, the innovation, the analytics, the models that all that stuff falls under R and D. Uh, and Pete Patilla, who, you know, recently left to go to the giants as the general manager. He was, uh, he took over as farm director. Eventually there's all this new technology coming into the sport. Um, track man, which, uh, gives you great information about pitch quality, you know, spin rates and uh, velocity and all these different things that, that previously was harder to understand. The the Astros at Patilla's behest start using edutronic cameras more. Got all this new data coming in. The whole kind of um, zeitgeist with the Astros was relying on the model, relying on the probability, relying on the odds. Well, this information is new. How do you incorporate it? into the model and Sig and Luno uh, typically wanted to be more conservative and Taubman and fast and Patilla were like, no, look, this is valuable information. Even if we don't know how to perfectly incorporate it, we've got to find a way to incorporate it, right? We shouldn't be ignoring it. Um, And, you know, the Astros end up bringing in McKinsey, uh, the consulting firm to kind of help adjudicate this in the middle of 2017. There's just, there's wild stuff going on in 2017, 2014 and 2017 are just crazy years for the Astros. Um, But Taubman ends up being along with fast, really the tip of the spear in the later years. Once the Astros win in 18, 18 and 19 Luno, it's not that he's not around at all. He, he does recede some, there there was an employee who would go put on the light in his office some days when he's not there. And Taubman doesn't get the AGM title 
for a couple of years. David Stearns was Luno's AGM early on, um, leaves to go run the Brewers. Taubman is clearly the, the obvious successor. Luno doesn't give him the title. Taubman ends up, and there, there's an executive in the book who, who uh, describes this. He's basically the functioning GM of the team. By the time you get to 18 or 19, he's really doing the day-to-day. And he's not getting the attention. He's not getting the GM opportunities that, say, Mike Elias got. And he's already an aggressive guy. He comes from finance, and he, he's just that's his personality. He was on the debate team. Um, you know, he, he was willing to bulldoze people. The lack of getting a promotion first to AGM, then to GM, the cutthroat nature of the of uh, the Astros environment, the amount of conflict that was going on internally, Taubman was starting to lose it. And there was this incident prior to him blowing up in the clubhouse that's new, a newly revealed in the book incident where Taubman left another baseball operations employee in tears, just tore into them verbally. The Astros didn't do a damn thing. Why, you know, why didn't Jim Crane, Jeff Luno, human resource to step in at that point in any meaningful way? And uh, what, what colleagues surmise is because Taubman was effective. He was, he was Luno's weapon. One of the reasons you didn't hear about Taubman quite as much as, say, Sig Dell uh, or Mike Fast as much as Sig Dell. Uh, people in, on the inside believe it was because Jeff didn't want them to get poached. Jeff knew who was driving the bus in those later years. And it wasn't Sig. Sig gets moved out of the office. He goes, uh, you know, to work with a minor league team uh, to, to help with, you know, help minor league players understand better what the front office is trying to do. Right. But he, he's no longer this leading innovator uh, at the end of his time with the Astros. And so all of this is a backdrop to Taubman loses control. That is not excusing that he lost control. He gave, it it is him, he alone gave people reason to question his morals, his values by yelling in defense of someone who had been suspended for domestic violence, Roberto Osuna, and doing so at a female reporter and in the direction of multiple female reporters. No one involved in that incident that I'm aware of believes that Taubman actually was doing it uh, to be misogynistic or in some way attack women. Uh, but it was still incredibly stupid and he was on edge. He, he was anxious. He was anxiety ridden. And, you know, there are cultural elements to that without excusing his behavior to understand how he progressed and what led to that. I, I think the book explains more in more detail than anything else has by far. The most important transaction, I think during this whole Jeff Luno era is the August 2017 trade for Justin Verlander. The story that goes around is Luno was at his in-laws house. There was bad cell service. He was working with Al Avila, the Tigers GM to get the deal done. This is during hurricane Harvey, but your book, you know, reveals that AJ Hinch played a very big role in getting this trade done. Cause at one point it was dead and he helped resuscitate it with some connections he had with the Tigers front office. And, he helped push it to a point where the deal got done. That sequence, was that just another case of Luno kind of being checked out? Or because you have some instances where Luno's always seems to be in Mexico, you know, during this book where, he, you know, he's not around. 
was that a that a point there where AJ Hinch just had to take charge, you know, for the team, which was kind of reeling at the moment? Um, in general, you know, Hinch arrives. He's he's got much. He's got more baseball connections, right? Ex player, ex manager in Arizona, been front office in San Diego, in Arizona. Um, and he's something of a darling, media darling, right? He, he's charming. Um, there, there was always this underlying friction and or jealousy that Jeff had with AJ. Uh, that doesn't mean that they couldn't and didn't at times work uh, reasonably well together. But, you know, when, when AJ is up, his contract uh, after 17 he wants a, he wants an extension. Luno at first only wants to give him a, a one-year deal. One of the things Luno says to him is, I don't need a, a general manager in the manager's chair. There, there is a territorialness here. And the, the Verlander trade is an example where those connections, that uh, position that AJ held of being relatively well-liked, not everybody in the industry, but relatively well-liked guy, um, were, were valuable. Right, he gets thrown out of a game. They're in Tampa because uh, of Hurricane Harvey. The series got relocated. He gets thrown out in the first inning. Hops on the phone and reignites this trade um, with a buddy, one of his good friends in the game. AJ is is uh, is high up in the front office of the Tigers, and so there's a connection there, and that proves valuable. Right, they end up getting Verlander, and uh, certainly Verlander is an important part down the road. So it, it, it there was a lot more to, to talk about with that. Uh, August 31st day, even beyond Verlander. But yeah, um, you know, there are different versions of that. How did that trade go down, right? You know, different people. um, Certainly some Astros people were unhappy with the way Luno had painted it, that, that, you know, uh, they felt there was too much credit going to Luno um, when really there was other people who who were powering him. Who are some of the unsung heroes that fans might not know about from this Astros era, you know, their rise from, you know, seller dweller to champion. Well, look, it kind of depends in, in, in what context. I mean, I, I think the book will show clearly that Mike fast was, was a very important member of the front office who did not get nearly enough attention. Sagan, and Mike Elias, uh, Luno's old St. Louis buddies, um, you know, we're, we're pushed into the spotlight uh, and, some of that's accurate, but but it really was only a slice of what was going on. Taubman, you know, was, was un, un, unfurling, um, but he was a very uh, important part of the actual work being done, even if he was railroading people. And um, it was kind of a time bomb of a person at that time. And, um, you know, Pipatilla is kind of that other side, right? That, that other faction in the front office was important. I don't think people understood how important David Stearns was. Um, he, you know, early in the Astros in Luno's time, there was Stearns who had, who had worked in the commissioner's office, he worked in Cleveland. You know, he, he's not this total outsider the way a lot of the front office was. There was also a lawyer uh, who had worked in baseball operations in the early years and moved out into more of a legal position. They moved on to the Padres and now finally actually out of baseball uh, named Stephanie Wilka. Luno had a little more balance early on and, and, and not that that avoided all sorts of problems in those early years, but as the front office grew more insular um, and more people who had never worked in the sport before, besides working for Luno, didn't know any other way, um, you know, it, it, it grew more and more perilous. But if the question is in the front office, who was unheralded? 
Um, certainly I would, I would point to fast and despite all of the problems associated with him, uh, Taubman and, and, and also Patilla. I kind of want to wrap up with a couple things with you. Um, taking a bigger picture view, the Astros are not the first MLB team to kind of do this tear down and rebuild. The Cubs did it under Theo Epstein, won the world series a year before the Astros. It seems like what, you know, the Astros did essentially tanking, to, you know, tear down and rebuild. Other teams are trying to follow this blueprint, but it's not that easy. And it's kind of created this gulf of haves versus have nots in baseball. In, in the big picture, has this been a bad thing for baseball? Look, tanking was a, this Astros model. Tanking was a big part of the lockout, right? Not, 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 you know, there, there was a lot to it, but um, you know, this was something that the players union uh, fought and, and did to some degree address it. You know, the problem is certainly not solved, but now you have a draft lottery. And so the, the you're not guaranteed the, the top pick. If you um, finish with the worst record, the way it was, you know, the Astros years, the, the thing about tanking, one in the book, um, you know, Bill James describes it as an idiot strategy. And that's it's the name of a title of a, the title of a chapter as well. Um, because, you know, he rightly points out, you're never going to have a, a totally homegrown team and these draft picks are anything but certain, right? In a weird way, the Astros show you that tanking is not a great strategy. Look what happened to Mark Appel. Look what happened to Brady Aiken. Yes, they end up getting Bregman and Bregman works out well in the replacement pick for Aiken. Uh, and Correa works out great, but you had three number one overall picks. Uh, two of them don't play an inning in the majors for you. One of them doesn't play for you at all. Um, and sure, Bregman does work out. Um, the the thing about tanking is that it was marketed in Houston and elsewhere as well. This is the best way to do it, and and perhaps the only way to do it. You know, we're this is the right way to build a team. Certainly the rules incentivize it to, to, to an extent, but you know, the, the, the wink, wink part of the whole thing that's never really discussed or, or not discussed often enough, or is never trumpeted by Luno or crane is how much money you save by trotting out bare bones rosters. You, you, you are deciding to punt and, and put out an awful product and it, it's actually genius marketing. Because you've convinced your fan base that they should love and accept this terrible product when, you know, you don't have to do it that way. You could choose to spend a bit in free agency on players uh, who might be tradable and then trade them for prospects. You could just choose to spend in free agency, period. Now, there was a whole overlay with the Astros of the television situation, the lack of money coming in there. Some of that was uh, certainly owed to the Astros and Jim Crane uh, and their decision-making uh, themselves. But, you know, that's the part of tanking and, and the whole process. Well, we have to do it this way. No, you you don't have to. It's just a hell of a lot cheaper to do it that way. I mean, it, um, there are other factors, but money and tanking go hand in hand. Jim Crane is a, is a key character throughout this book, you know, sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground. Now that his ownership reign has lasted, you know, a decade plus, what kind of owner do you think he's been? I know, like, a lot of politicians would kill for the approval rating that Crane has with Astros fans right now. When you look at him, you know, citing the title of your book, has winning truly fixed everything for him in terms of perception, at least in, inside this market? How many days after the World Series did he fire a general manager? That's right. 
Um, you know, this is a question that people have to answer for themselves. Uh, if all you want is a championship, then I, I guess Crane probably makes you happy. If you have concern about how that, what what the means to the end is, who has stepped on along the way, how people are treated, um, what, you know, all these little disasters. I mean, it's Crane's business. It's Crane's operation. Um, he had culture problems in his prior businesses. At Eagle Global Logistics, there was a massive discrimination suit that was brought against the company, and there was also war profiteering charges brought that sent people to prison. Um, and so you've had these three massive scandals somehow befall Jim Crane's companies. And, uh, you know, to hear Jim tell it uh, over the years and different quotes about any of them, you know, none of it is, is, is his doing. It's all people under him and makes you wonder what kind of oversight and management uh, – style he's really running um you know the notion that winning fixes everything if it really did fix everything we wouldn't be talking about 17 right the the 2017 astros are a great example of yeah you held up the title but actually something supersedes that uh and and for once in the minds of many maybe not all maybe certainly not all astros fans um you know, the bottom line isn't the result that mattered. And so Jim Crane is a very bottom line oriented, ruthless operator. Um, he's big into cost control and, uh, it doesn't mean his businesses don't produce results in a very traditional and conventional sense. They make money. Jim Crane's made a lot of money. Astros make a lot of money. Um, Astros have won two titles. One of them, we know there's there's a lot of a uh, lot more to talk about with it with 17 um i think it's up to the reader to read this book and uh think for themselves on all these different topics does this fix everything is this all you want out of an owner what do you want out of an owner is it just titles okay that's your decision last question i have for you um i know a lot of astros fans i don't know i don't even want, want to know what your twitter mentions are like but a lot of astros fans are going to say hey you're just beating a dead horse, blah, 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 about 2017. What do you say to Astros fans about why they should read this book? So let, let me start here. You know, when, when Ken and I broke the story, there was a lot of people were trying, you know, like ESPN wanted one or both of us on that day, probably Sports Center or something like that. We have done very, very little media about this. And I made the decision. Uh, like, like if you try to find Evan Drellick talking on the radio about the Astros, I did one NPR show in Houston at one point. Um, you know, it's not like I did nothing, but I've stayed very quiet. Like my tweets through the last three years have been about the Yankees letter, which I was, by the way, the first to report on, um, along with the Red Sox cheating, which I was the first to report on with Ken. Um, I love it when the Astros fans like, why don't you report on anybody else? We literally broke the Red Sox story and we're the first to write about the Yankees letter. What's your, I mean, what do you want? Um, And by the way, we were trying to chase down others. It it wasn't like we just stopped. Um, If you look at my Twitter in the last three years, uh, outside of those news events related to this stuff, Yankees letter, whatever, um, I haven't said much of anything about the Astros. And that's because I've been waiting. and, and, And frankly, it's been a little painful times to present a whole story. I wanted the whole thing out. 
I wanted all these threads put together. I wanted all the reporting done. I wanted people to be able to see and discuss a full picture. Um, you know, it's a look, fan reception, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, when it comes to something like this, I know some Astros fans will always hate me. Fandom isn't always rational. My job is to be objective and rational um, and fair. And I, I believe I've done that here. If you want to understand the whole story, and that includes the Dodgers using a base runner system, what was going on with the Red Sox and the Yankees, what was going on in the commissioner's office. Um, you know, this is not, this is a wide ranging, rich, and, and I think frankly kind of intense book that gives you a, a complete picture that you have not seen anywhere else. And uh, so it, it's a question of what do you want? Do you want it? Do you, do you want to be informed? I think this book will help you. It might enrage you, but I think it will help. Evan Drellick, senior writer for The Athletic, author of the upcoming book, Winning Fixes Everything, How Baseball's Brightest Minds Created Sports' Biggest Mess about the Jeff Luno era Astros. Thank you so much for your time. It was great catching up with you. All the best to you in uh, promoting this book. I think baseball fans are going to enjoy this read. Thanks, Greg. Thank you for listening to the Texas Sports Nation podcast. For more Astros coverage, please go to HoustonChronicle.com slash sports.